Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. These colonies are not just a ragtag bunch of individualists, but they, when, when the need arises, they can come together, they can govern themselves, they can take care of themselves, uh, and um, it gives legitimacy uh, to this, this new nation. That's the Library of Congress's Christopher Warren, talking about how Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the Declaration of Independence, and the Articles of Confederation shared the same ideological foundation. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of The Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield, 1780, by Edward G. Lengel. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Christopher Warren. Christopher Warren deals with rare American documents at the Library of Congress. It's a pretty cool job. And he's going to discuss today the shared foundations of three of the most important works in American history. One being the work of a private individual, Thomas Paine. And the other two being works of government achievement, the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation. Christopher Warren deals with these documents literally hands-on every day. It's an amazing opportunity for any historian, whereas a lot of us just deal with them in the abstract. I could tell you all about the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I've never held it. I don't think there's a map on the back of it. Chris would know. Uh, But he wrote a really fantastic article available at allthingsliberty.com, the home website, of course, of the Journal of the American Revolution, in which he shows how these ideas don't just fall from the sky. Like all ideas, uh, they are put forth and they build, they evolve over time. Individuals take what others have done uh, and not only improve upon them, but add to them. That's how you build a consensus. That's how you get to revolution. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Chris Warren. Christopher Warren, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Tell us about your background. Right. So I'm the the Curator of American History in the Rare Book and Special Collections Division of the Library of Congress. Um, And prior to that, I was a, a historian at Arlington National Cemetery and worked as a civilian historian for the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, I have a master's degree in history from George Mason and a law degree, and I'm finishing up my PhD there as well. Uh, undergraduate degree from University of Kansas, native Kansan. Uh, and before I turned to the study of history as a career field, I was a, a special agent with the FBI in New York City and a military intelligence officer in the Air Force. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, in my, my division of the Library of Congress, we have almost a million items in our collection. Uh, we're actually one of the smaller collections in the library, but it includes many um, 
treasures of American history, including the, the first printings of some of the foundational documents in American political history uh, and uh, literature. And I was actually putting together an exhibit at the library on focusing on the Declaration of Independence and began pulling some of the uh, most influential uh, pamphlets, documents, broadsides, you name it, uh, leading up to the Declaration and the ones that kind of most influenced the public and politicians and leaders, um, things like um, Letters from a Farmer of Pennsylvania uh, by John Dickinson, um, the, the, the treaty that ended the um, French and Indian War, uh, Rights of British Colonies by James Otis, et cetera, et cetera. And I began to look at, like, uh, these items a lot of times are taught uh, as, if they're taught at all, they're, they're kind of standalone documents that take a lot of the public an idea that came from whole cloth or original ideas. But when you lay them next to each other and begin reading the primary sources, you see how they kind of built on each other. A lot of the arguments, a lot of the discussions, um, they build in pamphlet form and letters and things of that type. Uh, so I, I started looking at which ones were, um, you know, built this kind of uh, continuity of ideals or thoughts addressing different aspects of uh, American independence and, and ideals and beliefs behind that. And I started specifically looking at Common Sense, of course, by Tom Paine, the Declaration itself, and then the aftermath of the Declaration, the Articles of Confederation, and trying to draw some, um, some links between the three. What were the primary arguments of Thomas Paine's common sense? Sure. Uh, Tom Paine, who's an Englishman, immigrated to the, to, uh, the colonies. Um, he publishes this, this, this pamphlet in January 1776. Of course, he publishes it anonymously. Um, and, you know, up to this point, uh, Lexington and Concord had occurred, so the revolution was, was beginning. But not many colonists were talking about um, independence, uh, declaring their independence from Great Britain. They really were looking for reconciliation. Well, at least publicly, they weren't talking about these types of things. Paine writes this pamphlet arguing, basically, that talk of reconciliation is, is, is past. It's over. There's no chance for that to occur. Um, what we really need is to declare our independence. <clears throat> and it's, it's one of the earliest pamphlets that's really expressing this. And what's so masterful about this document is Paine talks in common language. It's easy to understand. When you teach this in a university, it's probably, um, it's, it's most taught, I believe, because students can understand these arguments. They're very simple, they're very straightforward, you know, hence the name, they're common sense. And he really makes four uh, arguments that, toward the end of the, of the document, stating, uh, all of kind of declaring the intention of the colonies to separate from Great Britain, why they should do this. Um, his first argument, very simply, uh, is that, you know, it's the custom of nations that when two nations are at war, a third nation will try to step in and mediate. But while the uh, colonies are, you know, in conflict with Great Britain, if they don't declare their independence, then no one, you know, specifically France or Spain, no one's going to try to step into a domestic situation and settle that. <clears throat> so independence, a declaration of independence is needed for the possibility of one of these European powers to maybe step in and help one way or another. And so that's a very, you know, simple argument, <clears throat> understandable to the, to the masses. His second uh, argument um, is, again, that Spain and France probably will, ref they, they will refrain from taking any part in this conflict 
um, if it's a domestic dispute, because they don't want to step into a conflict, help out these colonists who then might reconcile with Great Britain, uh, and then Great Britain can be an even larger threat to the French or the Spanish. There's no benefit for them in this situation. So independence is needed. Again, if, if the colonists uh, have any hope of, of the um, European nations helping out in any way. The third argument he makes, uh, and this one is really addressed towards uh, the monarchies of France and Spain, specifically uh, the, the, uh, the kings, uh, Spain's Charles III and Francis, uh, Francis uh, Louis XVI, um, you know, they, they're concerned that they don't want to um, understandably support subjects who are in rebellion against uh, their king. Um, because this could set a dangerous precedent for their own people. They don't want to see this happen in their countries. Um, so the solution to this, and this is the fourth argument there that that uh, the pain makes that directly relates to the Declaration of Independence, is that that um, the colonies, they need to produce some type of manifesto to be published that will basically lay out the reasons why, they're, why, why they are declaring their independence. Um, the tyrannies that they've been subject to from the king from King George um, for all these years, the peaceful steps that they have uh, attempted to make to reconcile this, and the reason why, why you know these were not successful, and we have to now declare our independence. Uh, and the big part of it that they want to assure uh, European powers is that once they become their own nation, they will have a you know peaceful disposition. They they write towards European powers, and that's kind of code saying that. Um, this will not influence trade with the colonies. Uh, trade will still be open or will be even more open uh, to the European powers uh, if this occurs. And it's done to kind of waylay some of the concerns that the, the French and the British, or excuse me, the French and the Spanish aristocracy and the, and the monarchy has over this um, potential declaration. How was this received and how did it affect American politics? Sure. Well, when you, when you talk about its effect, um, it's difficult to trace like, you know, the effect of any one document or any one publication on um, the, the masses. But if you look at how it affected the public and then how it affected politicians as kind of separately leadership, um, what you can look at is you can look at publishing numbers. Who, how, many, um, how many copies of this were published in each print run? And it was massive for, the, for common sense. You know, it's, the numbers are kind of sketchy the, from different places, but most historians agree that Common Sense printed about, uh, in the first run, you know, first couple editions, uh, 75,000 to 100,000 in the first two or three months. So this is the you know, 18th century equivalent of a bestseller. Uh, it's published in the, in the colonies as well as in uh, Great Britain and France. So it's very popular there as well. Uh, so we know people were reading this. Um, and we know that politicians, but leadership in the colonies was influenced as well. Uh, many of the founders had copies of this in their library, uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Um, and then many of the founders, of course, wrote about common sense, stating that it was, you know, this is an influential publication and it help, helps to it helps you galvanize the public toward this dissolution um, with Great Britain. So again, you know, it's hard to specifically say how influential this was, but if you look at the numbers that were printed and you look at some of the leadership, at least the founders writing about this document, it certainly was uh, influential um, in their and the progress of, of uh, American independence. Talk about the base 
ideological principles seen in the Declaration of Independence? Right. Well, <laughs> there's quite a literature on this out there, if anybody's really interested. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to be brief here. Um, it's really, the Declaration is kind of a formal explanation of why the Continental Congress voted to declare independence um, and, and break from Great Britain. Um, and it, um, you know, it's typically the, the revolution is taught where it is broken up, uh, the Declaration, excuse me, is taught where it's broken up into five portions that each kind of give this philosophical underpinning of what they're doing. Even though it's really a legal document, it's not a philosophy uh, that becomes interpreted later on in American history, uh, this, this American founding ideals. But this original document is a legal document. Um, and the first part of it that they talk about, of course, is the introduction. This is the, the part that starts, you know, when in the course of human events. Um, this portion of it, it asserts, um, you know, that as a matter of natural law, which, of course, deals with enlightenment ideals and John Locke, and so on and so forth, um, the, the ability of a people to assume political independence is natural, right? Um, and it acknowledges um, that grounds for this independence must be reasonable uh, and must be able to be explained. People can understand while they're establishing this independence. You know, it's, it's, it's understandable. Um, it's not that complicated. The second part of it is the preamble, you know, the most famous portion of, of the Declaration that we hold these truths to be self-evident portion that, you know, outlines kind of a general philosophy of government, but that also justifies revolution uh, when the government that, that men have come together to form to protect their, their, their rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. When that government has become tyrannical or destructive, it's the right of the people to revolt, to change that government. Uh, so they're kind of laying out the rationale uh, behind the declaration in the first two sections there. The third portion, that's the indictment portion. And that's really the most, maybe arguably the most legalistic portion of it. Um, it's that 27 grievances against King George, um, blaming him for you know, basically everything under the sun, as laying out the reasons why it's justifiable that the colonies are declaring their independence, because they've suffered under these specific tyrannical uh, decisions. Uh, this is the one that they, in the original draft by Jefferson he writes the, the portion blaming uh, Great Britain for forcing slavery on the colonies, which, of course, gets uh, edited out uh, later on. But this is, you know, the most direct and probably the least read portion of the Declaration today. But it's those 27 grievances uh, arguing against King George. The fourth part is the denunciation part. Um, in this section, it just kind of finishes the case for independence you know, we've stated the, re the, 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 the philosophical reason that we can um, advocate for revolution is legitimate. Here's the tyrannical reasons, or here's the tyrannical uh, decisions we've been living under for years and the reasons why we now can legitimately declare our independence. And then a fourth, of course, the, the fifth person, fifth section is the conclusion. Um, these are, this is the one, this clause that has that famous statement that these United Colonies are and have right ought to be free and independent states. Uh, the signers, they're asserting their, um, their exist conditions under which people must change their government um, and that it's really necessity that the colonies must now uh, throw off the political ties for the British crown and declare themselves independent from it. 
So this document is, you know, one of the reasons why it's, you know, so well remembered um, and quoted by everybody is because it's, it's kind of like Tom Paine's common sense. The arguments are, they're not that complicated. You can understand them. They're a little more legalistic, of course, than common sense, because they had to be. And of course, it was the main drafter was Jefferson uh, with Adams and Franklin. Um, but it's clear statements of um, the legitimacy of uh, the American, the colonial cause and American independence. You say that the Declaration continued the ideas put forth by Thomas Paine. Uh, could you explain that? Sure. You know, Paine, uh, in one of his arguments, specifically states that a manifesto must be published explaining why um, this this colony or, or what have you is going is, is needing to declare independence. It's one thing to um, protest, to state reasons, uh, to galvanize the public, but then you need to actually um, form some type of document that puts a rationale behind it that's understandable by other governments, um, European governments as well. Um, and this does this, I think, masterfully. It really fulfills Paine's requirement of um, how to make independence uh, credible, how to make it um, legitimate, and, um, you know, gal- galvanizing the public and, and showing uh, not only the, the colonists themselves, but other nations that this is a unified front. One of the often overlooked uh, uh, documents uh, in American history, of course, are the Articles of Confederation. Uh, how did those come into existence? It was indeed. Um, so a lot of people don't know that the uh, when the um, Continental Congress, um, when they formed this Committee of Five to draft the Declaration of Independence or a declaration of some type, um, they also... Um, the day after they appointed that committee, they appointed a second committee called uh, a committee of um, 13 members to draft a proposed uh, constitution. So uh, the Continental Congress, they were really forward thinking. Now at this point it hadn't, nothing had been ratified, nothing had been decided. There was a lot of contention going on, whether the uh, delegates even had the authority to approve a vote for independence one way or the other, whether they could even, uh, vote on that. Uh, that was very contentious and took a lot of work to uh, reconcile those things in each colony. But they were had enough foresight to determine that, okay, while we're debating this, we need to come up with our reasons and then come up with a sketch of some type of governing document to go forward for at least the conclusion of the war, if not uh, thereafter. Um, so <clears throat> this committee of 13, which sounds like a, a very large committee, um, Luckily, to begin with, John Dickinson, one of the delegates, he was uh, uh, voted on to chair the committee. And he wrote kind of the initial drafts of the Articles of Confederation. In fact, the earliest copy that the National Archives has is in his hand. Um, he's a pretty interesting figure, and he's kind of – his reputation has suffered over the years because he uh, refused to sign the Declaration of Independence or vote for independence itself um, for a, a myriad of reasons. Um, but he writes up this initial draft. Um, he had a very, he had a talent for writing. I think I already mentioned earlier. He wrote a pretty influential pamphlet um, in um, let's see, seventeen seventeen sixty eight called "Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania." Uh, in that pamphlet, he um, 
insisted that Parliament had no right to impose taxes on the colonies without consent. So, and he's one of the, the, the earliest ones to argue no taxation without representation. Anyway, he's, he's uh, got a great reputation in Congress. He drafts this initial um, articles, um, and he presents these uh, to the Congress, and they go through various drafts. It takes a long time um, for this to go through. One of the reasons is because, uh, boy, was he, first of all, it was hugely contentious. This is kind of, this, the arguments about the Arctic Federation really uh, give you a preview of, the, of a lot of the arguments that come uh, during the uh, Constitutional Convention. They're arguing about the federal government, power of the federal government, power of the states, who should be sovereign, who should have the most authority. You know, do we have a chief executive? How are we going to work this? Um, that's contentious, as well as um, Congress, of course, is being forced to flee uh, periodically during this time period. Uh, first, they go from Philly to Baltimore, and then Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Finally, they end up in York, Pennsylvania. Um, so articles continue, the, the debates over the articles continued for a while. Uh, finally, in October 1777, they um, come to kind of a final draft, and members of the of Congress um, they vote on it and pass it, but then it has to go through the ratification process in the states or in the colonies. How did these articles continue what both Payne and the Declaration of Independence initially put forward? Sure. So the ratification process, unlike the Constitution, later on. Uh, the, the, to ratify the Articles of Confederation, there had to be unanimous consent, and it dragged on until 1781. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of reasons, like I said before, but one of the main uh, issues uh, that uh, delayed the ratification was that uh, smaller colonies, uh, smaller states, uh, and particularly those that were landlocked, like Maryland, Delaware, Rhode Island, they were concerned that larger states who were not landlocked, like Virginia, uh, would be able to uh, continually move west, increase their, the size of their state, thus increasing the size of their population in the future. And they would be able to hold way more power in the future than a state like Delaware or Rhode Island um, or Maryland could ever hope to, to wield. Um, so they, were, they refused to ratify really until they had some type of assurances that this land um, in the western part of the colonies or the states um, would somehow be um, given to the federal government or wouldn't be allowed to be used to just continually increase the size of these larger states that were not landlocked. Um, and Maryland was the final holdout, and they finally ratified the articles in uh, February 2nd of 1781. And they really went into a... Uh, uh, official practice or use in March 1st of 1781. But, you know, by this point, the, the Congress had been under the de facto um, control, I guess you'd say, uh, of the articles for, for a couple years. Um, so the, the ratification process itself was kind of, um, it was more symbolic than anything else. And, and the articles get a bad rap, too, for their um, uh, their use after the war is over. But it's really, you have to remember, this is a, a governing document passed during wartime, really only designed uh, for a specific time and place. Um, they weren't designed for what came afterwards. And really their, their effectiveness during the war is, you know, perhaps secondary to their symbolic importance. Uh, you know, it really represented the ability of the 13 individual states um, unifying, despite this long ratification process, behind a common cause together. 
How should these important documents be remembered in the greater context of American history? Yeah, well, um, and that's one of the reasons I kind of wrote this article was to try to see these three in context with each other, not as separate um, documents in and of themselves. Um, you know, the, the 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 declaration was really kind of stating the why behind colonial dissatisfaction with Great Britain. You know, what the issues were, what what had been attempted up to the point of break um, to reconcile our differences. The articles gave this the how. You know, how are these states, new states, um, going to get along? How are they going to unify? Um, and they both kind of fulfill this requirement that Tom Paine put in Common Sense on what was needed to be done for independence to be successful. Um, so they're, they're linked together in various ways. They, they kind of each um, address a different segment. Uh, they have different audiences that bleed over, of course. Common Sense is written for the public, written for you know, everyone to be able to understand the arguments. But, of course, it was read by many of the leadership, too, the, the founders. Um, the Declaration was a legal document stating to um, really Great Britain and Europe the rationale behind independence. But, of course, it's read and then read to um, everybody in the colonies. And it's understandable, just like common sense, if a little bit more legalistic. The Articles is designed to maybe have um, two primary constituencies. Um, certainly, it's addressed to the colonies and the leadership, saying this is how we can um, attempt to unify behind a common, the kind of common enemy and common purpose. But it's also designed to show European governments, specifically France and Spain, again, that these colonies are not just a ragtag bunch of individualists. But they, when when the need arises, they can come together, they can govern themselves, they can take care of themselves, uh, and um, it gives legitimacy uh, to this this new nation. Christopher Warren, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>